Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, October 21st. Uh, just when you think Shanghai's done, you know, we've got the ATP Tour Finals in a little bit, but maybe we'll get a nice weekend of relaxing action. Nope, that's not how it goes in the tennis world. What a weekend we were treated to. Three fantastic ATP title of, uh, titles going down this week. Two phenomenal WTA champions emerging there as well. D- uh, World Tour finals implications on both sides. And joining me to talk about all of it is my doubles partner, partner in crime, and a man who has not been on a Crack Rackets podcast in far too long, Maxwell LeBauer-Rothman. Maxie, welcome back to the Mini Break Podcast. Well, as we've mentioned before, you know, married couples get in fights. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I had to go on a little three-week vacation, and uh, I, I got my, my rest. I, uh, I'm i fully recovered from my freak ankle injury, uh, and I'm back, so here I am. In this scenario, you're definitely the one who is seeing other people. I feel like you know I'm loyal to you. You've got me by, by, the, uh, by the strings. See, it... it it's almost like you thought I was seeing other people, but like it was one of those scenarios. Like you thought I was cheating on you, but I wasn't actually. So it made me angry, and so I left. Yeah, it's, you just it's, wanted to remind me how much I should cherish you. You're right. Exactly. This is all project. The real shock. It was is all that my West, plan. The real crazy West off one of these days. He's gonna pull like uh, an auto workers union and be like, "You guys don't pay me enough." Like this is I'm on hundreds track. of thousands. Exactly. But with all of that in mind, Maxie, it is wonderful to hear your voice and have you back. A lot of tennis has gone down, but just your opening thoughts on what a weekend of tennis we had. I mean, it, you know, it, it was ridiculous. Uh, you know, we, we've got a lot of first times, uh, first times for everything. We have a, a first time winner uh, for our wonderful young man. Um, Dennis Shapovalov, sorry, and uh, Andy Murray coming back with a nice win as well, so, uh, you know, some good wins there. there. There's just a lot of W's this weekend, and luckily I was up late enough on a couple nights to to catch some of the action. Whether or not I was in a state of mind to really appreciate the tennis, I don't know, but uh, I got to see some of it, which was good. It's not as though I haven't been following tennis closely my entire life, but particularly over these last three years, obviously with the podcast, I've followed it most closely. And I swear to God, Max, it feels like more and more the end of the season for guys like me who love the young players breaking through, who love seeing these end-of-year narratives come to fruition, players making pushes for the World Tour Finals, all of these different storylines. 
we've been treat again three. It was Kachanov and Tsitsipas last year who just Kachanov. I mean, you haven't gotten one of Kachanov. those. Kachanov, yeah, exactly. You know, I, I've been saying Kachanov lately because the lovely Mike C. Tennis was like, dude, you say Fognini, you say Kachanov, like your Michigan accent is just brutal. And he said it lovingly, and so I've been trying to clean up Fognini, keep the G silent, yeah, you know, real G's move in silence like lasagna. We all know that Kachanov is. I try to sneak that in, but then always after I can't help but go Kachanov or. Catch off. Catch off. Uh, yeah. Um, but it, you if know, I ever saw him, I would say it to his face. I'd be like, Catch <laughs> off. What's like, good, baby? Karen. It's good Karen. to see you, Karen. Um, but it, it, what, what I'm trying to say is him last year winning in Paris and Zverev winning the World Tour finals. The year before that, Sock winning in Paris. Uh, you know, we've and seen Dimitrov. young guys break. Th- yeah, we've seen young guys break through in so many different ways at these end of the seasons because the a the point in second incentives being what they are we don't see the top four top three guys playing as often but it's just really a great time for players who still want to change the end of their season narrative to come through and we've seen so much of that this season I mean yeah it it, you know it's a great opportunity to get points um you know I think it's some people are like oh it's such a lame way to get points at the end of the season you know what if, if you're going out there and winning a tournament, it doesn't matter how you're getting your points. Um, but I, I just taught a tennis lesson to uh, <laughs> a young a young boy. He's 12. He loves the game and, and follows it a lot. But his dad was saying, he's like, yeah, I don't... I don't really. I can't really keep up with all the tennis, you know. During the Asian swing, it's just not as fun. And I was, I was saying to him, you know, that's ridiculous. Like this is such a good time of the year. Yet, you know, of course we don't have a, a Grand Slam for a little bit, and it's the end of the season. But there's still awesome tennis, great results, and this is a perfect example. A really unbelievable weekend of results for you know a bunch of different people. So uh, if you're not paying attention to the swing right now, uh, definitely tune back in because it's worthwhile. And let's get into those results. The place we both, I think we have to start, obviously a place near and dear to my heart, the European Open in Antwerp, Belgium, where it happened. You know, let's set the scene. Australian Open 2019. Andy Murray, who's been banged up for a season and a half at least, just his hip is just, it, it's not working. Whatever's trying to go on, it's just he seems to not be able to find a consistent form of health. They have a retirement video posted of all of these players wishing him well, hoping he gets better. Now, ten, you know, nine months later, flash forward, he's gone on this uh, rehab tour. He's slowly built his way up, and now he is back in the winner's circle. He takes out Stan Wawrinka today in the final 3-6-6-4-6-4 becomes the lowest ranked player of course according to our guy at Luca Beck uh, the lowest ranked player to win an ATP tournament since Paolo Andohar who was number 355 when he won one in 2018 in Marrakesh I mean where do we even start with this Max well yeah and I think this is also his first title since Dubai 2017 um, so, I mean, you know, a pretty long stretch between titles for the guy. So, I, don't, I mean, I have a lot of thoughts, a lot of questions. First of all, did you cry when he cried? <laughs> you know, so I did in Wimbledon when he lost to Federer in 2012. <laughs> and maybe I'm just jaded now. Maybe I'm less invested or maybe I'm just a cynic. But I, I tried to. I was like, I should I more tried to. I want you to know this, this is my thought process for the listeners. I thought, man, if I can go on there and give some, like, a teary performance, maybe that would be endearing. Like, you know Dalton would use that for the Twitter clip. And unfortunately, I don't have tears in me anymore. Um, but 
it was moving. Like, how could you not say that? The support he's gotten on Twitter all day, the fact that you could just see the emotion he was wearing on his face in the moment when the final ball went uh, long, when you know it processed to him that he was back in the winner's circle. It was just, it was phenomenal. It's what makes tennis so special is because it's an individual sport. When an individual goes through this sort of turmoil that Andy Murray did, one of our great champions who now has these past two years, while his biggest contemporaries, Djokovic, Federer, and Nadal, continue to rack up titles, people continue to say there's a separation between those three and him, who, again, those were the standards. Those were the people he always competed with at the, the game's highest stages. And to come back—no, he's not at that level, but to come back and just see him triumph— see him overcome his physical ailments, see him problem-solve in ways we, you know, you've, you've seen Andy Murray problem-solve throughout his entire career, of course it was special. It was, it was just, it was a phenomenal performance. Yeah, I mean, look, it, we've had some pretty crazy comebacks this year with Tiger, you know, and, and his huge win, and I, and I think if we were to see Murray come back and win a Grand Slam, it wouldn't be quite that caliber. I mean, taking off as much time as Tiger did is, you know, even more impressive, um, but it would be unbelievable to see Murray come back, and, and I don't think I had any belief that that was possible until now, uh, and, you know, one of the thoughts that I've had about Murray up to this point, which actually changed when I watched the match against Vavrinka, I, I thought his movement really has changed. Uh, I, I really do feel like he got slower. He seems tentative on a lot of those out wide balls. Like he's not willing to, you know, really put that weight into his shot. Like, is he, I don't see him sliding really anymore. He runs through all of his chase down balls. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I think that's one of those things that I've noticed of him. But I felt like that was different against Vavrinka. I feel like you saw that little bit of, I don't know what it was. It was like, it was almost like angst about, you know, the old him. He's like, I have to give it my all. Like, I need this title. I need to to let my body just take it. Uh, and I actually thought he moved a lot better in that final than I feel like I've seen him in the last few weeks. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's just unbelievable that he played at the, at the level that he was playing at. And just it's it's awesome to see him back. I'm I'm really glad you brought up the movement point because when you look at this week for Andy Murray, it did break perfectly draw wise. He beats Kimmer Copeland oh, yeah. first round, a guy I you know I know is a former junior French Open champion, but not a guy who's broken the top 100. I don't believe, and you know that's sort of the the draw you want. Pablo Cuevas round two again, not a guy who's really going to hurt Andy tremendously. Marius Kopel round three with the you know Andy goes three sets there, but again still no top 50 foes. He gets the young Frenchman Hugo Umbert in the semifinal, a big hitting lefty who really pushed. Andy. The first set, because you're right, his movement's not the same. He slices way more backhands than he used to, and you know how angry that makes yep. me because I just... And he drop it. shots a lot. And... Yeah, the best Andy... Well, he moves forward a lot, and I want to get to that a lot more now, we'll a lot more efficiently, that. and I want to get to that in a second, but from the movement component, you're right. It's not... 2016 Andy Murray and nor should we expect it to be because he's still three months into this or you know two months into this comeback he still has a long way to go to find his top form and his game is adjusting but that we get to see those adjustments it speaks to him as a tennis mind that he's able to weather the fact that he's generously a step slower now I would say he never was a big slider he was always so physically fit that he would stop and just so explosive with that first step but But that's what I mean it's that 
it's that's right. It's that stop where I feel like he's not willing to do that hard stop on you know either side really. Um, but I also want to give. Can I just say though, uh, one thing I miss more than anything about watching Murray is when he stops, he always goes oh, and that yeah. always comes out every time. And I do that now too because obviously, of course, I've been you do motivated, and I have terrible hips as well. They do lie, according to Shakira. Um, and so, like, I I understand that grunt, but just aesthetically to hear that, I was like oh. That that sounded like the grunt that uh, Parker gave during our live show when we were doing <laughs> name that grunt, just like out of out of the blue. The, yeah, it was good. Um, but I also want to give a little credit to his win against Umber. Umber took out Gofen handily and Guido Pea, who was the five seed uh, in this tournament, and he looked good. Like he, that's a really he, good so, win for Murray so to pull out. So the fact that what made me so upset, getting back to the backhand point, I'm glad you say that because Umber, being the lefty, he wants to go big with the forehand, and too often when he would hit a big forehand cross court, Murray would respond. He tried to go slice line, but oftentimes the slice would float a little bit. Umber is able to get around it, hit a forehand. And that's the thing, you know, Andy Murray has said right now in, in appraising his game, he's like, I'm around top 70. And he's in like 124-ish right now in the live rankings. But he says, I'm a top 70 player right now. That You know, he knows his form. And I think that's very true. I think there's there's certain things that are sloppy. He, you're right. He's not moving as well. He does slice out of corners. He's not hitting the pass as confidently as he used to. But you talk about the adjustments he made in the final. A, something he did well all week, his serve. I mean, he only makes 56% of his first serves, but that first serve in particular wins 73% of those points. He's serving and volleying now. He's working his way forward, trying to hit a big plus one ball and immediately following in because he's aware I need to play shorter points. I thought against Stan in particular, Stan hits a big ball. If Andy slices, you're you're playing right into Stan's hands and that he was going to be able to dictate. And Andy hit through the backhand way more in this final match, pushing himself over the limits because as you mentioned he's back in an ATP final that means so much to him so so that was you know he he rose to the occasion as the great ones always do but it's fun to see these adjustments he has good hands he is a smart volleyer it's I think working this part, I mean, he, there's all, you know, he was never going to be able to stay as fit as he was from 2010 to 2016 at this point. That's just, that Novak Djokovic and Nadal can do it, it's a joke. Um, even Federer, I think objectively, as good as he's been, we would say he's not as fast as he was in his 20s. So no one would expect Andy Murray to still be that physical freak. But he has, it, it looks like he is going to be able to find ways to shorten points that don't get him killed, to to turn his his physicality now uh, into a positive in that people always said he was passive. I know this is a long rant, and I'm sorry, but that was always the big gripe against him, right, is in the big moments he's not moving forward. He's not playing aggressively. He's leaning on just trying to out-physical the other guy, trying to, dare I say, be a push. Um, and it's going to be fascinating to see if he can physically, because I feel like there's still half a step maybe just from him getting fit or getting matched up, getting a full healthy offseason in for him to find. But working this aggressive and this mindset into his game, it's going to be really fun to watch moving forward. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. You know, dare I say, be a push. I mean, I've <laughs> said it. I've said it in the past. Like, I, I think, you know, I've I've commented on his game being, uh, you know, a little bit passive, and and I think this next this new step in this direction he's going is great. 
Uh, I've loved the way that he's moved into the net and covered the court uh, in that way and tried to close off some points. I've seen him be pretty aggressive on some cross-court forehands. Uh, I saw that a lot in his match against Dimenauer. I mean, because when you're playing Dimenauer, you have no choice but to to be aggressive because that dude gets freaking everything. Uh, So I've I've loved seeing that from him. And, you know, I think top 70 is about right for Murray uh, at the moment, but he's going to keep getting better and, uh, it's a bummer. I just looked up the ATP or yeah, the Bovada uh, odds for the Australian Open, hoping to see uh, a line for him. <laughs> no line for for Andy Murray on on Bovada. So what, either that means they it's so low that they're not even considering him. You know, in well, maybe the they don't know if he's going to get in. Well, I mean, he's right, going to get in, but, but he's going to get a wild card or something. Um, so yeah, it would have been interesting to see that. But yeah, I, I think we're going to see an, an increasingly. Uh, better and and more confident Murray as as we go forward. I'm curious, when does he switch back to Adidas? Like he he's got to right. Like he, so he's he still can't... rocking the Under Armour shoes. It's a good question because what is he wearing now? It's the bird thing. I don't know. Yeah, I, well enough. Um, I actually don't know this one. I, I should have looked it up. But uh, yeah, and they're not a sponsor of our mini break podcast, so <laughs> I don't feel bad saying it, but. That's he's got to switch question. to one. He's got to switch to one of the big ones, right? I I could see I mean, him not going Uniqlo. like Lacoste. There's there's no, no way. Ooh, no, no. Lacoste. Ooh, I could see him doing. That's a very I, Andy Murray move. I could see him as a Lacoste guy. I, the the only problem is he's a little too good for Lacoste. <laughs> and I say that lovingly, but like, right? He's probably too good to rock Lacoste clothes on. The, like, not since Andy Roddick, who you know my thoughts on, has there been I mean, a good Lacoste tennis player in singles. I so mean, you're just setting dude. yourself up for failure. I don't know, dude. Uh, Lacoste is clean. Name a good player who wears Lacoste. Name one guy in the top ten who's rocking Lacoste. I, mean, I don't think any. Oh Djokovic. no, Medvedev. Medvedev. Does Medvedev Djokovic? wear Lacoste? What is and Medvedev? Djokovic? Oh, he wears Lacoste? Oh. Yeah, they both wear Lacoste. I thought Djokovic <laughs> wears Uniqlo for some reason. You're right. He, he used to. This again, my fashion sense is not why people listen to this podcast. Uh so <laughs> all right, I rescind that. Sorry, Lacoste. Um actually West yeah, no, we don't need a right no, sound effect. I'll own it. I'll it. own it. But yeah, uh I mean, I don't know. I, the point is, it's great to see him back. I think there's still <laughs> upside to his game. I think he, you yes. know, again, he looks like he's just enjoying it so much, the fight to be out there, that we saw him win multiple three-set matches. It bodes well for his fitness, that his game improved in level throughout the course of those matches bears well moving forward. And, you know, that he beat a Stan Wawrinka, who hasn't been great this year, but you look <clears> in the live rankings, he right now is in the top 20. He's at number uh, 17. It's a great win for Murray on his way back. So really excited to see that there. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Uh, Andy Murray is worthy of 10 minutes as a storyline. There's a lot of things we want to cover, and we don't want to go an hour long today. So let's move on to our next title. Uh, let's let's talk about Denis Shapovalov, who, to me, 
one of the big winners, again, when talking about the narrative of the post-U.S. Open push, but even before that, in Winston-Salem, he obviously had uh, some success there as well, going through, uh, I, I believe, to the semifinals before losing that doubleheader to Hubie uh, Hercatch. He, of course, plays a great five-set match at the U.S. Open before losing to Monfils. You look at him throughout this Asian run as well. He's had a, a lot of success over the course of time. Uh, he goes to... Uh, Laver Cup obviously loses to Dominic Team, loses his doubles match, but plays well there. Makes the semifinals. Such a good match with Team. Yeah, it was a juicy one. I mean, he so you saw his level there. Makes the semifinals of Chengdu as well. No, no top fifty wins, but still good to get another semifinal under his belt. Beats Kasmenovic before losing six and six to Gofen in the round of sixteen in Tokyo. Beats Tiafo handily before losing three of three and three in the round of thirty two in Shanghai. Goes to Stockholm here. And wins a final, his first title of his career, a big stat going into this. This was the eighth ATP semifinal of his career, the first seven times he had lost in the semifinal, all seven times to the eventual winner of the tournament. Here he makes his first final and gets a win over Filip Krajinovich, 6-4, 6-4. Now again, you look at the draws, and it's not—there were no flashy wins. There were no top no. 50 wins. His best He should have won all the matches yeah, a, that he won. a top 60 Krajinovich and a top 90 Popper. In. But, A, not only should he have done it, he didn't lose a set this entire week. And this is the sort of tournament, it's like Riley Opelka's title in New York. He should have had one of these by now. And it's it's reassuring to see that despite really struggling through the first two-thirds of the season, he has brought his A game to this home push. Yeah, I mean, like you said, these were straight set wins, and a lot of them were, you know, handle like really, really handily won. You know, second round, an zero and three win. His match against Sugita is a five and two, and a four and four win over Krajinovic. I mean, he played really clutch at the break points. He's hitting these, you know, ridiculous one hand jumping backhands all over the place, and so he just looks really solid. I would, I would love to see him continue to keep this momentum. Uh, you know, into Australia. That That is the only thing that when I think about this Asian swing and the end of the year, it, you you worry that they get this confidence and you, they, they play well. And then there's a little bit of a gap. You know, you get that, you know, basically one month of rest, if you want to even look at it that way. Uh, and then they go to Australia and, and you get a little bit of this uh, time off from tournament play and uh, you know it, it would be nice to see him continue it I'm just a little worried that that uh, momentum uh, pause might hurt him a little bit so the flip side of that is the Neil Medvedev and Stefano Tsitsipas right so you gave the Hatchinov well, yeah, Sock example where right. they both win the Paris Open and now Sock's on the precipice of falling out Medvedev of the, the and Tsitsipas are probably hyped they they're they love this little you know, last yeah, no, so so last year, Tsitsipas gets his first ATP st- title in Stockholm as well, right? So Shapovalov, you know, in terms of boating well, that's obviously awesome. Now Shapovalov can also still play the next gen finals in Milan, which we saw Tsitsipas win last year as well. So there's that in play for him, and that he's got another match, but he only has one top twenty win. Uh, since the U.S. Open, including in that, of course, is over FAA in the first round, but wins over Rublev, a guy who we're about to talk about, and, and Kesmanovic, a win over, you know, a, a, a Filip Krajinovic here in the final. 
at a certain point, if you want to be a top 20 guy, if you want to be a top 10 guy, those sort of matches do have to become routine. Uh, you know, Roger Federer doesn't sweat until sometimes even a quarterfinal of a major. That's just, he rolls through those early round opponents. That's part of his greatness. And Denis Shapovalov, this is the first extended period of time where he's just beaten those guys ranked below him consistently. He's he's not getting, you know, a good week and then three first round losses. Week after week after week, he's getting wins under his belt. He's building that yep. confidence. And in terms of his game, if you haven't seen it by now, I mean I don't know how many guys on tour hit a harder ball than Denis Shapovalov from the forehand. The fact that he can take one-handed backhands early, slap them both down the line and cross-court, the forehand so aesthetically beautiful, his turn, just the ball explodes off the racket, his serve being a lefty, he can attack you with angles you're not comfortable with, he's comfortable moving forward, even though sometimes I think, like you, he's an adventurous at best volleyer, you know, he likes to go for those short angles, um... I don't. I, I, if if there if you're writing the narrative, the script of a guy who's gonna make a jump after an end of year run, I think Denis Shapovalov have checked off all of the boxes that make me think this is a guy who can easily make second week 2020 Australian Open. I mean that's a big statement. I mean look, he he is at I think at a ranking current ranking of 27. Um, so I mean he's definitely got the potential to make a second week I it's always with him in my mind it's always his head game can he mentally stay in it and I think sometimes in those three out of five set matches he loses focus at times uh so again I'm with you his game his level of play easily there easily And, and I hope that he can continue to play like this I just hope that he can you know mentally stay with it through a three out of five set you know into the second week of a of a major in the final against Krajinovic, only makes 56% of his first serves, but wins 28 of 30 on those points. You know, 93%. He goes 14 of 24 on his second serve, saves the one break point he faces. And that sort of explosion, even though he's not a 6'4", 6'6", type of body like so many of these other young big servers, I mean, you can just see holding serve for him when he starts getting comfortable, when you're right, when mentally he gets it just locks into the plays that work best for him consistently. It's just going to be so easy for him to hold serve, protect, particularly indoors on a hard court. Are you kidding me? Like, and, and, and I'm not saying, look, the draw because he's number 27, the draw in Australia is a thing. It's not going to be easy to make the second week because there's a ton of good players but on a hard court with his game the the upside is just so clear yeah I mean in, in this match against Kranovich 93% of first serve points won I mean you're not going to lose hey if you're, if you're winning 93% and making you know at least half of your first serve so uh yeah it, it, when he like you said when he's got that one-two punch rolling he's scary he's a scary player yeah. Speaking of one-two punches and players who are scary when they're rolling, let's talk about our next champion, Andre Rublev, another one <sighs> of these players who, including Cincinnati, you know, since that stretch, has really been one of the top, dare I say, 30, 20 guys on the ATP Tour. You look at him this week in Moscow, where he brings home a title, uh, propelling him now in the live rankings all the way back up. Andre Rublev sitting at, let's look, 
number 22 a career high I mean yeah the the results have borne out he he has been so good and you look at him now 32 and 17 on the year of course he dealt with injuries earlier in the season was playing I believe on the challenger level at one point uh you you know you look at him since we'll start with Cincinnati where he made that quarterfinals beating Stan beating Federer beating Basilashvili before losing to Medvedev then of course makes the quarterfinals at Winston-Salem losing to Denis Shapovalov keep in mind he made it through qualifying at Cincy. Yeah, a crazy amount. And how many matches he's put on his body, you know, as quarterfinals of Winston-Salem. Then goes round of 16 uh, at the U.S. Open. Quarterfinals in St. Petersburg, losing to Medvedev, who we know doesn't lose to anyone anymore. Round of 16 in Beijing, losing or beating Dimitrov, but losing to Fodnini with a silent G. Uh, making round of 16 before losing to Zverev in Shanghai. And now winning here in Moscow... I just—all of these young players—I I said this before, and I'm, I'm sorry to keep harping on this point, but they just hit the ball differently. Like, the the explosion on an Andre Rublev forehand, not only another guy who grunts thoroughly because he's just exuding all of his force into his forehand turn and just hitting the ball with an angst and a passion of a thousand suns. I mean, it's a special ball, and he's a special talent. Yeah, I was talking with Kale— uh, the other day when we were playing some paddle tennis and just talking about, we were actually talking about uh, Yannick Sinner and, and how you know there's a sound in tennis when you hear the strike of a ball that's just different. Uh, and Yannick's got it, but Rublev really has it. I mean, it's just clean, powerful, pristine. That should be a, a tagline. Clean, powerful, pristine. Um, the it's experience. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it was Shanghai where the the semifinals being wh- whatever it was, it was like Tsitsipas and uh, Zverev, Tsitsipas, Medvedev, Berrettini. Right. So it was the first time that there were three guys under the age of twenty three in the semifinals of a Masters since like the nineties or like the early two thousands. And so yeah, the young guys are are absolutely taking over. Um, but Ruba, man, I mean, you were mentioning all those wins for him, or I mean, the the results. But it, more importantly, I mean, we've been talking about how Shapo, you know, yes, won this, not beating any, uh, you know, significantly ranked players. Rublev's done the opposite. He's made these results with unbelievable wins. I mean, if you go back to Cincy, like you you listed off some of those wins, but. You know, in uh, the U.S. Open, he beats Tsitsipas first round, and he beats Kyrgios. Uh, you know, he goes to China, beats Dimitrov, and in Shanghai, he beats Borna. So, I mean, these are really good quality wins, and those are the kind of wins where you say, wow, that, that does give you a lot of confidence for a Grand Slam. Maybe he can go to a quarterfinal. I mean, he made a round of 16. No reason he can't make a second week. And the thing I like about his performance in Moscow is he got better as the tournament went on. Now, a tough, you know, tricky first round. He escapes three-set win over Alexander Sasha Bublik, number 48 player in the world. Knocks off Jeremy Sov in the next round in three sets. But then straight set wins over Miljevic, over Chilich, over Manorino, 6-4-6-0 today. You can just, when you watch him play, how imposing it is. He wants to be on top of you on the court. He wants, you know, there, there's no hesitation with Andre Rublev. He's swinging away. And yeah, you know, sometimes he slices the backhands when he's in trouble. And that's the thing is he moves solid. You know, he, he's very diligent with his movement. His footwork is very aggressive. Um, but he's not the most 
just natural athlete. Probably not as impressive physically in terms of the way he can move as his contemporaries Hachinov, Kiachinov, or Medvedev, uh, just in how, you know, they're 6'4", 6'6"-ish, and they just can move. It's just incredible how they are. But he makes up for it because the contact point. You're right. It's just so special. And he, it's just, I've said the word special so often. They're, they're all, they're, the talents right now on the ATP Tour, I just want to read you some of the guys from ranked from 22 to 40. I mean, we've got Andrei Rublev at 22, Borna Chorch, 24, Shapovalov, 27, Dimenauer, 28, uh, Kyrgios, 30, Fritz, 31, Hubie Hercatch, 35, Opelka, 37, uh, Christian Guerin, 38. I mean, yeah, there's a slew of guys in that 20 to 40 range right now who, because, again, the top five players in particular because they've all clinched their World Tour final spot. They're not playing these events. There are openings for them, and I think it speaks to where we're at in the ATP Tour that we're now seeing guys like Shapovalov, like Rublev, repeatedly come up with victories uh, in this part of the year. Absolutely. It's fun. I mean, we've been talking about these young guys for a long time. I mean, pretty much since we started this podcast and talking about how, you know, we can't wait for the day where these are the guys we're seeing in a second week of a Grand Slam. And here we are. It's it's fully happening. And I, I do want to talk about the WTA Tour events, but the last question on Rublev, you look at his results over the home stretch. I mentioned 32 and 7. Uh, and 32 and 17 now at this point of the year on the ATP tour uh, obviously has made a very strong push he has a title on the year now as well but a strong push to end the season um, versus a guy like Karen Hetchnoff who has struggled a lot this year you know 27 and 24 no titles he has a ton of points still to defend with the Paris Masters coming up had to defend a title here as he was the winner in Moscow last year uh, you just you look at the way he's dropped off, and I mean he had such a great 2018, making uh, you know fourth round, fourth round, second round, third round at the majors. He did make a quarterfinal this year at the French Open, quarterfinals at Indian Wells, semifinals in Canada. Uh, but it was it was you don't want to say a down year. It was a stagnant year for for Hachinov. And so when you look at these two players projecting their upside moving forward. And I'm going to say Medvedev's in his own category right now because as good as Rublev's been, Medvedev's been better. But I guess, I don't know. When you're looking at the two in terms of upside, and Mike Cation gave me this whole speech on how he doesn't like the word upside, but I guess just the physical tools available to them. Whose game impresses you more at this point? Probably Rublev. I just think... Former world junior number one and a guy who made the quarterfinals of a major almost first of this group when he did it back in 2017 at the U.S. Open. So not a bad thing to say. Not crazy. I mean, mean, the thing about Rublev is I feel like every time I'm watching him play a top guy, I feel like he believes he's better out there. He just wants it so badly, right? Dude, he doesn't back down. He doesn't back down at all. He's like... I don't give a shit. I am going to rip this harder than you. Your ground strokes don't scare me. I'm going to play my game and come at me. Like it, that's the kind of mentality I see with him. Uh yeah, I mean, I don't know though. <laughs> it's it, it's a it's a hard. Would you rather be 6-5 can move really well, return really well, not the best volleyer, but you have that serve to lean on as as well or Rublev who I mean, look, I'm not questioning Medvedev or Hachinov's work ethic, but I just feel like of all of these young guys, and I saw him on the practice courts, I again, you just see his body language. He seems to want it so badly, 
and I don't know how you don't love a guy with that sort of attitude. Like, it, to me, it's well, he's a little bit of an asshole. Like, there's no denying that. You can tell. You're right. To, he does believe he can beat all those guys, and when you do that, that comes with a level of arrogance that you need to have as a top player. And, you know, he gets angry. He throws his racket. He complains a little bit. Those are the unintentional comedic factors that we love. We probably give him a point bonus in terms of us for watchability. Um, but I don't know how you just don't love a guy who clearly wants to be the best at his craft so badly. I mean, the the thing, I don't know. Remember we did that poll, that Twitter poll a while back? It was like Medvedev, Kiechnov, and Rublev, and it's like who wins, wins a slam first? first? Yeah. I mean, I, of course the nod still goes to Medvedev, but it's moving more towards the Rublev train. I don't know. I, I really think it could be. I would say it's not moving more towards the Medvedev or more towards Rublev, but any passengers who are on the Hetchinov bandwagon, they may be looking are, to ride the Rublev Express. They're like, you know, Medvedev's I, not for me, but this Andre guy may be the one to. I mean, the right. we I asked you a question probably at the start of this year and maybe multiple times. Who's more likely to get a slam first, an American male or a Russian male? And I think you know if you did the odds oh in God. Vegas, it would be minus one thousand for the Russians. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> And you would be stupid to to bet otherwise. So. Oh yeah, I like. I, so I I would understand for people who, you know, I, I I'm not jumping off the Hatchinoff bandwagon. I still think he's such a talent, and unfortunately, it was just it's tough when you have so many pe- points to defend all year long. The first time you do that, and, and he's still Hatchinoff. Right, that's the thing is he his the success he's had. It's one of those things where people just have a an expectation. It's like Michigan football. Like we've been good for so long that you know. And I hate that I'm even bringing this up because it's just going to make me upset. But, like, people have high expectations every year no matter what. And it's like, you know, catching off early on, set the expectation. At he can, you know, beat anyone and, and win a Masters. And uh, so now people think that. And so it's when he doesn't perform, people get upset and are like, ah, uh, they start questioning him. And it's like, first of all, the guy's still really young. Like, you got you to gotta give him some time. So um, he'll he'll figure it out. I'm not worried about him. All three Russians, top 21 in terms of points accumulated on the year. You know what's sad? In the top 25, there are three Russians, two Spaniards, two uh, Frenchmen, two— And no Americans. No, uh, two Canadians and only one American. John is— One American. Yeah, a little bit disappointing, but we'll save that for another time. We'll we'll stay in Russia, though, because— we wanted to talk a little bit of WTA, and I know we're going over time, so keep this on the briefer side. But WTA finals implications coming into the weekend. Belinda Benchich, who found herself at number 10 entering the week behind number 8 Serena Williams, who really it didn't look like she was going to play the WTA finals anyways, but she still was the 8th ranked player. And number 9 Kiki Bertens, who herself was the number 2 seed in this draw in Moscow, where number 3 seed Belinda Bencic found herself a late wildcard entry into the event. And Belinda Bencic, you know, in a, in a moment like that, last event of the year, you're playing for, or not last event, but one of the last events of the year, you are playing for your spot essentially into the finals. It speaks to something of where you are at of a player when you need to get a final, you get the job done, and you bring home a title. And that's exactly what number three seed Belinda Bencic did. She is a 3-6-6-1-6-1 winner in the final over Pavlochenkova for the number three seed Bencic on the week. She knocks off Herzog in three sets. Flipkin 6-1 with a 10-8 first set tiebreaker. 3-4 in the semifinal over Mladenovic. And then three sets over Bencic. Again, Ashley Barty. 
23 years old. Naomi Osaka, I think 21 or 22 years old. Uh, Belinda Bencic, 22 years old. Bianca Andreescu, 19 years old. I Coco think we Goff, found our 16 I, years old. Okay, <laughs> Coco. There's a lot of young Americans, and I know, I, I, I I'm, I'm, <laughs> and I'm definitely not doing them justice by excluding all of these other players, but. I think we found our big four for the next 10 years on the WTA Tour. Like, I am so confident these four top talents are just special. And I got to stop saying so. They are. I got to find a new adjective. But I think this is a group— They're unique. They're they're different. They're idiosyncratic. They're not unique because we've seen these (laughs) sorts of talents before. But the way they have dominated at different portions of the year, I mean, these are the players that have stood out above the rest. No, no, they they have, and it's been clear. I mean, you just look at the results, and they're the top. They're the four that are always deep in in these tournaments. So, Barty number uh, you, one, you, Osaka number three, Andrescu number four, Benchich number seven in the world. It, yeah, it speaks for itself. It's right there. And uh, and by the way, if I was to put together the, the WTA finals group, and if I got to rig it, I would completely do an old versus young. And this is disrespectful to Svitolina, who's 25 years old, and none of these players are actually old. But he, here's our eight. I would do one group of Barty, Osaka, Andrescu, and Bencic, who would be one, three, five, and seven, respectively. And then do Pliskova, Halep, Kvitova, and Svitolina. And be like, okay, here are the newbies. Here are the oldbies. Play it out. We'll get to the semifinals and the best will emerge. That'd be fun. We we should that that should be a thing, anyways. Even on the, yeah. on the men's side too. Grab the youngins the way, and the old guys. Yeah. If they rigged it, would anyone get mad? Like, no. I don't think. I think people would be like genius. No, te- tennis tennis fans would lose their minds. Uh, but We'd, did Svitolina get invited to Pliskova's wedding? <laughs> Dude, that that would be such a hot storyline. Oh my god. <laughs> oh, let's not open those can of worms. I don't. Yeah, I know. Sorry. Um, yeah, I, I just so for Belinda Bencic, who uh, I've said it before, her run through Dubai into the went title there into Indian Wells final was so great. She made the semifinals of the U.S. Open, a great result for her there. Um, and she deserves, in my opinion, to be I, as good. As, with all due respect to Kiki Burton's, I don't think her highs were as high as Belinda Bencic in 2019. And I think this field we have in Shung, or where their WTA finals, I think in Asia, I, I'm not sure exactly, but these are the best eight players in the world. Yeah, and and Benchich just you know coming off of a, a qualifier loss uh, in Linz to like you said get this W uh, before the end of the year, huge and and not you know this is not an easy job for her. Pavlovichova, great player. She she beats Bladenovic before that. Uh, her cogs, I mean, it, good wins and this is just it's got to be a great confidence boost uh, again at the end of the year. Forty-eight and twenty on the year now. Sixty-eight matches. This is her first it's really healthy season. She's been struggled with health issues a lot in her career, and that's why we haven't seen this sustained excellence. I think this proves if she can stay healthy, she's going to be a top ten player. So the tour needs to watch out. But one other WTA result I want to talk about real quick. Another player who has flashed the upside of these other young players, and unlike Bencic, also finds herself with Barty Osaka and. Uh, Andrescu as having a slam, and that's our winner in Luxembourg, Yelena Ostapenko, who has played so well of late. She was coming off of a final the week before in Linz, uh, where she lost to Coco Gauff in three sets. She comes out here in Luxembourg, and she brings home a, a title, her first title since 2017, a dominant performance in the final, 6-4, 6-1 over Julia Gerges, uh, the number two seed. 
uh, for the 2017 French Open champion, Max, I believe it was 2017. Uh, 2017. I mean, she she has a coaching change as of late. I believe she's now working with Bartoli. But you look at her uh, since really, I mean, over these past two weeks, but really down the home stretch, I mean, she went from significantly under 500 to now 20 and 20, 27 and 27 on the tour this season. Uh, that aside, to get this title this late in the year for a player who was just looking for some sort of confidence, how important is this for Ostapenka? Oh, I mean, it's huge. If you look at her results before this, I mean, a lot of first-round losses, second-round losses to players that she, quite frankly, you know, shouldn't be losing to. And, uh, I mean, yeah, crazy to think that, you know, just a mere two years ago, she was uh, a French Open champion. She was a uh, Wimbledon quarterfinalist in 2018. She was a Wimbledon semifinalist. Uh, and then, you know, this year, just rough results at the Grand Slams, you know, round of 32 and three rounds of uh, 128. So, I mean, uh, this is going to be awesome. And again, I've, I've talked about it a bunch, but uh, you hope that this is the kind of thing that she can roll into the Australian Open. Let let this kick kick off the a strong start to her, you know, 2020 <laughs> season. That's crazy to say 2020. Uh, but uh, seriously, I, I think it's it's everything that, that she could have asked for. And, and now uh, she finds herself number 46 in the live rankings, which coming into, the, you know, that she doesn't have many points to defend early in the year because she struggled a lot. That's easy to build on. And, you know, she could find herself seated at the French Open, and we all know what she's capable of when she gets hot. So the upside is just it, so clear. Her firepower, it's so fun to watch. Yeah, she, she moves well. And, and again, you got to keep in mind, she's 22 years old. Like yeah. just turned twenty two. I mean, she's making, she's winning a a Grand Slam at twenty years old. So uh, and you talk about the, someone mentally. The upset, you know, if she improves mentally, gets a little more stable because she is not afraid to express herself. That's half the fun of Yelena Ostapenko. Uh, if the talent, when the talent wins out at that point, when the you don't want to say when the, I guess experience level matches the talent level she's going to put together an, another couple of special runs because you don't have that of sort course. of success early in your career if there's not more left in the tank. Of course. She yeah. That it's a name that you used to hear and you will continue to hear <laughs> now that she's now that she's back. No, without a doubt. Well then Two more stats before we go from at Luca Beck real quick. I wanted to mention these earlier. I just didn't have the time. Uh, Dennis Shapovalov, the 15th player to win his first ATP tournament in 2019. Uh, he joins the list of Tennis Angren, Alex Dimenauer, Juan Incognacio Lindero, Riley Opelka, Radu Elbot, Laszlo Jir, Guido Pea, Christian Guerin, Adrian Manorino, Lorenzo Sinego, Taylor Fritz, Dusan the Deuce Laljevic, Nikolas Jerry, Hubie Hercatch as first-time winners during the 2019 ATP season it's the season with the most fresh winners since 1999 where there were 16 first-time winners and that honestly feels right it feels like we've seen 20 years of a lot of static play yeah I mean we we, we were talking about it probably early to mid-season we were like dang this is a lot of new players winning and we loved it like this is what we this is what we want we don't want to see the same stuff over and over so yeah this this is great to see I agree Shapovalov also becomes the second player born in 1999 to win a title behind I believe Alex Dimenauer uh the second guy to win one of the 1998 class Stefano Tsitsipas, so good company for Denis Shapovalov being number two. For Andrei Rublev, he's the ninth player from Russia to win the Kremlin Cup, again, falling off of Hachinov's performance last year. Cool to see the follow-up there. 
But in general, really, really fun week of tennis in the books. Any final thoughts from you, Maxie? No, it, it's uh, it's good to be having this kind of uh, fun tennis this late in the season. Again, you're you're missing out if you're not paying attention to the the late, the late swing. So uh, tune back in, folks. Yeah, and that's part of the fun of doing this mini break every day. And you look at the events we've got going on this week. Two more ATP 500s to sneak in. We've got uh, the event in Vienna, of course, and the event in Basel, given that the ATP World Tour Finals still wide open. A lot still to decide, so I promise we'll be talking about those later in the week on the WTA front. I believe it's World Tour Finals week. Correct me if I'm wrong, but <coughs> we are in for what should be a very, very fun World Tours final. Again, we listed the field earlier, but those top eight players uh, really have been the eight best, in my opinion. So, um, Oh, no, excuse me. One more event World- this week in Zhuhai, uh, and then we've got the WTA Finals in Shenzhen the week after. So one more week to wait, but WTA Elite Trophy Zhuhai is the name of the event, and if it's an elite trophy, you know we're going to be talking about it here at Crack Rackets. And, of course, if you want need to keep up with the many storylines going on, this mini-break podcast, the Great Shot podcast, where we're doing our Best of the Decade series, and we'll have our next podcast tomorrow night, where I believe we are talking about those players who should have slams that do not from the 2010s decades on the ATP side, so be on the lookout for that. Cracked interviews-wise, we're getting back into the swing of things in college season with the ITA All-American event in the books. We're going to be talking to a lot of those winners. Uh, we've got, I believe, the the champions from Yale, the women's doubles champions coming on on Thursday. We've got uh, Ashley Leahy, the Pepperdine women's singles champion coming on on Tuesday. Paul Jubb in the queue from earlier in the year, but a lot of fun things on the horizon, so be on the lookout for that. I ask this every time. Like, rate, subscribe, review, and Max, you and I both see the download numbers. We'll stop asking people to like, rate, subscribe, review, and put on those five-star ratings when we see the five-star rating number match how many listens we get per episode. We know some of you aren't doing it. It's not hard to do. It's not. It's it's a, it's a what, three clicks? Four three clicks? Three clicks. Open phone, podcast app. I guess four clicks. Mini break. Four clicks. Well, technically, ten clicks when uh, you do it four. across all three platforms. But ten clicks, people. Oh, what if... Think about the stupider things you've done with 15 seconds of time than spend 10 clicks. Yeah. I'm thinking, what could asked. you do? What are the stupid things you've done in 15 seconds? I've eaten four Reese's in 15 seconds. That was stupid. Like, I felt very sick afterwards. I have, I've seen you I've chug like, multiple beers in 15 seconds. Great move by you, not your best shot. We have won your service game in 15 seconds. So, pretty much, you can like, rate, subscribe, review all of these podcasts in one Max Rothman service game. That's not a lot to ask. No, that's that's it. It's just it's very simple. <laughs> that's what I have to say. And of course, gotta give a shout out to the super producers, uh, Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff, who have a f- of an editing job to do as always. And Maxie, how much are they worth? Hundreds of thousands. Hundreds of thousands. And so we love you guys. Also want to give a shout-out, of course, to the great Andy Murray. Great to see you back. Got to give a shout-out to him. But for my lovely co-host, Maxwell LeBauer-Rothman, for our super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westhoff, and from our entire team at Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Maxie, what do we tell our listeners? That's a break. And we will see you all next – or I guess tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.